Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Today, we'll meet families who are being reunited after spending the last year working through family treatment court. This is a program for parents who struggle with substance use disorders that helps get them into recovery. During the pandemic, most haven't been able to see their kids in person. You know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And when we were able to open up and start visits, I think those visits were all the more meaningful for the kids and their parents. Also, many oil and gas workers come into contact with a fracking byproduct called brine. The gas industry says it's safe, but is it really? They tested his clothes, radioactivity, they tested his car, radioactivity went into the house, looked at the carpet, and then looked at the baby crawling around on the carpet, and there was radioactivity. And it's garden season. We'll check in with an update on the mortgage lifter tomatoes. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. The nation's three biggest opioid distributors are currently on trial in Charleston, West Virginia. A federal judge will hear questions about how much responsibility drug companies bear for their role in the opioid epidemic and how much money they should pay to help communities across Appalachia rebuild. The judge's answers might set a precedent for other communities, and the trial itself could last months. 90 miles east in rural Nicholas County, Friends and family recently gathered at their local courthouse for a different reason. They were celebrating the first graduation from a local family treatment court. The program helps parents in recovery to reunite with their children. Emily Allen was there and spoke with some of the families who were graduating. Nine months ago, Angie Johnson of Nicholas County got a call that would change her life. Johnson, a mother of two, had just relapsed after temporarily losing custody of her infant daughter. When they took her from me, I started back on the meth because I thought, why? Why even bother? They took my baby. What can I do? She was back in a treatment facility when someone from the local courthouse called and asked if she would like to give a new family treatment court a try. The program connects parents to treatment options, job training, housing, and other resources to get them into recovery, all while parents are allowed to have regular contact with their children. Nearly a year after getting that first call, Angie is graduating. Angie has 308 days clean. She also has obtained employment at Line. Community members and a couple local television stations have gathered at the Nicholas County Courthouse. One by one, five graduating families receive their certificates, surrounded by flowers and family portraits. Angie says this day, and the Family Treatment Court program have made all the difference for her. Because I am a good mom. I just made really bad decisions. And to actually be 11 months clean, back to work, reliable transportation, a home to put my girls in, it means everything to me. On April 26th, Governor Jim Justice signed a bill into law that allows all 55 counties to open a family treatment court. Statewide, West Virginia currently has more than 180 adults in such a program. Nicholas County Judge Stephen Callahan says it's unclear whether court programs like these are the magic solution to the state's substance use crisis. But they're a step in the right direction. Before treatment courts, the only thing we had was law enforcement and probation. There was some rehab, but not a whole lot. He says family treatment court gave him a new way to approach the issue, and he thinks they're making a difference. I don't know if it'll ever be solved, but we're making headway, at least in this county. 
Last week, local officials for the city of Huntington and Cabell County had their first week in federal court for a lawsuit against some of the country's biggest opioid companies. But opioids aren't the only drug that family treatment court participants are struggling with these days. It did start off with opioids, and then, you know, we regulated those and make them, made them harder to get. That's Denise Pettyjohn, an attorney who represents the interests of children during family treatment court proceedings. She says increasingly the parents of the children she works with are turning from opioids to methamphetamine and fentanyl. These substances are easier to get, but they're also illegal and can be more dangerous. This was a mining, a huge mining county, and that just all dried up. Um, and you have a lot of people who probably started off with prescriptions to opioids to handle the pain of that very hard and rigorous job. Um, and then we made it harder to get those, and they switched. Most of the participants started family treatment court as the pandemic set in. One of the major attractions of the program for parents is continued visits to their children. But the pandemic made in-person visits nearly impossible. You know, we just did what we could to make it happen. There was a lot of FaceTime. We did a lot of Zoom visits. And when we were able to open up and start visits, um, I think those visits were all the more meaningful mm -hmm. for the kids and their parents um, because that gave them, um, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And I think it really gave um, our participants a push. Now that in-person visits are possible again, Angie Johnson would tell any parents or counties considering the program that it's worth it. There's a lot of stuff stacked against you and you feel absolutely helpless in the beginning. Like, you know, they took your kid, I'll never get her back, but you can do it. Judge Callahan announced during the graduation ceremony that Nicholas County plans to double its capacity for family treatment court in the next year. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Emily Allen in Nicholas County. Those who have found recovery during the pandemic face especially tough odds. Opioid overdose deaths spiked last year. At least 88,000 people died between August 2019 and August 2020, according to the latest data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. That's 27% higher than the year before. So not only has our region still not healed from the opioid epidemic, but it's still playing out. Travis Steimling is a professor of musicology at West Virginia University and the editor of a book called The Opioid Epidemic and U.S. Culture, Expression, Art, and Politics in an Age of Addiction. The book collects 23 essays by academics, artists, and activists about how art and the opioid epidemic overlap. Steimling spoke with my co-host Caitlin Tan about the book. I found myself intensely frustrated with the kind of dehumanizing language that often comes around policy discussions uh, dealing with opioid use. But at the same time, I knew that my students who were in recovery were intensely human people. I teach in a school of music, and to me, there's nothing more human than making music or making art. And so this was a, an effort to try to reconcile those two aspects, this kind of dehumanizing policy language and the very human expression that I was experiencing with my students and with my neighbors as well. And that's interesting when you just mentioning the dehumanizing. That was actually one of my questions I wanted to ask you. People who have been affected by the opioid epidemic 
obviously are not just a number and they're real people with complex lives. You actually wrote a little piece about this in your book in the introduction. And I'm wondering if you can just read that for our listeners. People with addiction are widely seen as a problem that results from bad choices made by people with weak moral fiber, rather than as people who were caught in a vicious cycle that in many cases was started by the very political, financial, and industrial gatekeepers who want to prevent them from recovering. And I feel like that just really gets at what you were just talking about. Yeah, through all of this work. I've done uh, done work on, on mountaintop removal and on oil and gas and things like that, how those intersect with music. And this project really brought a lot of that together. I wrote an essay about a really great song cycle that is set in Wyoming County, West Virginia. And it very deftly ties together mountaintop removal and the opioid epidemic in such a way that you really do see how closely tied all of this is to extraction, right? The, the, the way we've experienced the opioid epidemic here is, is very much about trying to get as many dollars out of the mountains and the people who mine in the mountains, the people who live and work in the mountains as possible. And then, you know, like the old rusty coal tipples that are left behind, kind of leaving people with without the resources to recover from what I think is really just systemic misuse of human beings. Yeah. And something that um, is unique about your book is looking at the epidemic through the lens of culture and art. I don't think it's something that we see every day. What are the implications of art and music and addiction? Art and literature and music and drama all play, I think, a very important role in the ways we understand the opioid epidemic. These sorts of mediums can be exploited in a number of ways to either exacerbate stigma around opioid use and around addiction and around recovery, or it can be used as a tool to break those stigmas. It can also be used as a tool to provide space for people to work out their own personal issues through recovery. And so the essays in this book really take a broad look at how media and arts shape our understanding of the opioid epidemic. I think we have to remember that the arts are fundamentally human thing that are going to either help us get into recovery or they can exacerbate the problem. Music's ability to draw people together who have common issues, common problems, and who need a place to be safe together. I think we miss those opportunities a lot of the time. And so this book highlights the power of photograph exhibit uh, in shaping the ways that people understand the opioid epidemic in their own communities or the ways that Getting together and singing pop songs can help build community where community is needed. I'm hopeful that people who pick up the book will see some sort of way to use the arts in a productive manner as they think about recovery in their own communities. And you kind of touched on this, and I wish we had time to go through all the essays, but one of them that, that stood out to me was actually the first one. So it's titled Something Too Pure Slash Is Killing Us, Opioid Addiction, Porn, Endurance, and the Neoliberal Appropriation of Resilience. And yeah, Jordan. Jordan Lovejoy, and she she worked with us on our Folkways reporting project. I just love her, and I really found that essay interesting. And um, a lot of us are familiar with the term poverty porn, but to use the term opioid addiction porn, can you kind of talk to us about that a little? 
I should say, you know, Jordan is a, a native of Wyoming County who's doing work around recovery there while she's also completing her PhD. She's very much aware of the ways that literature and film lead people to believe that everyone in a given community is already addicted to opioids and is irrecoverable. And so in her essay, she takes a, a deep dive into uh, notions of resilience, the idea that you know, people who continually recover from floods or you know, recover from economic disaster are deemed to be resilient because they keep showing up and keep rebuilding their communities. But we seldom ever look at the reasons that resilience is needed. So she's really pointing to just the basic language we use around communities in Appalachia can sometimes be uh, a barrier for us to imagine what our future could possibly be, because we don't really understand why it is that we got in this place to begin with. Yeah. And I, I just love, again, how she uh, discusses and talks about resilience. And, uh, you know, it's something that so many of us here I just wanted to just quote the last little bit of her essay yeah. just for something for people to chew on. Would you mind reading that? So here's what Jordan has to say about resilience. She says, resilience suggests an overcoming a finished product that survived the disturbance. As of now, though, we're not quite resilient. We are still enduring. I'm wondering, Travis, is there... Any parting thoughts that you have about your book and the opioid epidemic and Appalachia or anything else you want to add? I couldn't uh, get off this call with you without just saying it's necessary for us to consider what our future is going to look like. And until we deal with the traumas that have gotten us here, it's going to be very difficult for us to move forward in a way that is sustainable and that serves everyone in the Appalachian region. We're not looking toward a world where microbreweries are going to solve everything and where gentrification is going to solve everything or where a statewide income tax cut is going to save everything. We need to spend more energy and more effort and more dollars in reducing the stigma around opioid use we need to spend more dollars and more energy in providing spaces for people of color and for LGBT people with opioid use disorder to do recovery work in spaces that are safe for them. And we need to work very closely with our local, regional, and statewide politicians to make sure that harm reduction programs are in place across our region. Uh, we desperately need compassionate care and, and compassionate community building, or we're not going to survive uh, not only this epidemic, but whatever the next one is to come. That was author and WVU professor Travis Steimling speaking with Caitlin Tan about a new book he edited called The Opioid Epidemic in U.S. Culture, Expression, Art, and Politics in an Age of Addiction. Up next, Oil and gas workers sometimes handle a byproduct of natural gas drilling called brine, and it's radioactive. That's coming up after a quick break. I'm Mason Adams. You're inside Appalachia. We'll be right back.
Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Journalist Justin Noble has been looking closely at fracking and natural gas development. He's been reporting on the place that's ground zero for natural gas production here in Appalachia, the Marcellus and Utica Shale in Pennsylvania and Ohio. He spent two weeks on the ground learning from residents and activists in the region. Toward the end of his trip, a community organizer mentioned that the waste produced from gas development was radioactive. That was three years ago. Last year, Noble published an investigative piece about the dangers of radioactive oil and gas waste in Rolling Stone. The headline is, America's Radioactive Secret. The story gets into worker and community safety and health concerns over the wastewater that comes out of fracked wells. We're talking about billions of gallons of salty waste that's pumped into injection wells underground, which have even been used as a de-icer on roadways in Pennsylvania, though that's been discontinued. Last February, just after he published his article, Justin Noble talked with the Allegheny Front's Carol Holsopel about his story. Your story begins with Peter. He's a man from southeastern Ohio who's been driving a tanker truck of oil and gas wastewater, which is called brine. He's been doing that since 2014. And a couple of years into his job, he learns for the first time that the waste he's been hauling is radioactive. And tell me about the samples that he took of the brine and what they revealed. Yes. So this is a type of job that if you spend time on the roads in southwestern Pennsylvania, eastern Ohio, northern West Virginia, you see the brine trucks. A brine hauler is often the term used to describe that job, but there's no placards on the trucks. It looks like they're driving a truck that could be filled with water, with salt water. And this is what they're told, that they're driving a substance that isn't necessarily hazardous. Um, So this group of workers is one of the specific groups that has been really concerned. They don't believe that it's just water, it's just salt water. And often verification of that will come when they're pulling into a facility. Certain landfills, certain injection wells do have equipment to measure radioactivity. And so someone will measure their truck and kind of say, hey, bud, you're hot today, something like that. And I've heard this story repeated a couple of times. And then the driver uh, will be like, what do you mean I'm hot? Because they weren't aware that there was radioactivity involved with this at all. And so that person, the driver, goes down a similar sort of rabbit hole that I went down, where they try and figure out, well, why is my truck radioactive? What is really in it? Where is it coming from? What's happening here? And Peter happened to be a really, just a little bit more thorough and a little bit more curious than a lot of the drivers. I think a lot of drivers, I know from talking to Peter and others, are going through this questioning process, really worried about what they're hauling. But Peter decided to take it to the next level and actually start taking samples which, of course, is you know, not just dangerous because he's taking samples of a material that he's learning may have you know, concerning radioactive elements, um, but there's the question of being caught by his employer, co-workers seeing him, asking him what he's doing. Because of a really vibrant group of grassroots organizers in Ohio and in Pennsylvania, he was able to connect with folks and get those samples to Duquesne University, where they were then passed on to a lab at the University of Pittsburgh. And what did they find? Yeah, so they found radium. In Peter's case, I think the levels were in the low 2000s, uh, 2,400, something like that, picocuries per liter. So radium is often measured in a unit called picocuries per liter. 
and the units get complicated, but I think the important thing is to remember the number. Five picocaries per liter is the EPA's safe water drinking limit on radium. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission has two different uh, limits because there's two different isotopes of radium common in oil and gas waste. So there's radium-226, radium-228. For the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, that's 60 and 60. So we're just remembering the number five for water. 60 plus 60 is 120. For the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, that's their discharge limit. And then Peter samples were above 2,000. You know, that is high. And what is concerning is that means that this is a hazardous material. And we start to get now deeper into the, the bowels of the story. You know, why is Peter able to carry a hazardous material in a truck that is not placarded as hazardous? But, but that's one of, I think, the core revelations of the story and the core concerns and, and what Peter's own investigation showed. Yeah. Well, so what is the health concern in terms of, like you mentioned, he's taking these samples. I don't know if he used gloves. I don't know what, what even is safe handling for this kind of material. But how does it get into people's bodies and what's the concern there? Yeah, it's a great question and, and the constant question I was asking myself throughout this reporting. So if you're a brine hauler, a lot of your work is in the truck driving the brine. There are radiation experts who can calculate exactly what radiation you'd be getting through the truck. But in that case, you know, the big pool of liquid is behind you. Um, there could be some gamma rays coming through. The most concerning parts of the job for these truckers, though, would be when they're one-on-one -on -one handling the material. So, for example, if you're pulling up to a brine tank, you often have to use your hands to make this connection between the tank and the truck. Uh, and as Peter and other drivers have conveyed to me, brine will get you know, all over you. Um, you're wearing PPE, you're wearing a certain type of protective equipment, but it will still get on your skin, on your hands, go on your pants, splash on your shirt. Even more concerning are some of the specific jobs done at the wellhead, and a brine driver will often have to do this job. So you will have to go into the tank and clean it out. And this is an extraordinarily dangerous job. If you, you know, live in the area, you can picture the brine tanks pretty well. A human being will go into that tank it does not even matter if they're wearing a respirator. A respirator, great, that does protect them better. I have many stories of people who are not wearing respirators. Even if you're wearing a respirator, you're still exposed. Um, and, and they have to basically use like a squeegee or some sort of cleaning equipment to clean the sludge out of the tank. So that job is going to be giving you a significant exposure in part because the sludge on the bottom of the brine tank has a greater concentration of radioactivity. It's accumulated, just like sludge anywhere. You know, it's things settle out and accumulate, and so that's where we can expect concentrations to be even higher. And that job has been documented in other states to lead to really worrisome exposures. So you mentioned, you know, get on your skin. And then also, I think the article mentions breathing it in. How does that happen? What becomes really scary when you do this reporting is dust. Dust is such a simple, innocent thing. It's kind of floating everywhere in our living rooms outside. But radium, which is the main radioactive element of concern in oil and gas waste, um, radium has the ability to flow with water, which is why we see it coming up with brine in the first place. It flows up to the surface. It's mixed in with brine, but it can also hitch on to dust. So radium can connect to a dust particle and say you have some sludge that has a high radium concentration or um, in brine and it's splashed on you and it dries out, you have a little bit of crust on your jacket, um, that is easily becomes airborne. We don't even see dust often. 
and you can be breathing radium into your body. And that's concerning because radium is what's called a bone seeker. Radium has a similar makeup as calcium. So your body will take radium into the bones, believing it to be you know, something that's good for it. But it's not. When radium is in your bones, you then have a radioactive element literally embedded you know, in, the, in your skeletal structure, and it's blasting out radiation as it decays. Uh, and this is an exceptionally dangerous place for radioactive element to be. I mean, you've now digested you know, the nuclear process into your body. And as you pointed out in the article or some of the people that you talked to, it's not just the worker that's exposed. It's their family. They bring, this, they bring their uniforms home. They have this dust on their bodies. Yeah, so this is um, really important to mention. We aren't just ringing chicken little here. We have documented examples from the state of Louisiana where oil and gas workers were exposed in different ways and just what that means for them and their families. So one of the most dangerous jobs is a job of cleaning scale out of pipes. Um, And uh, again, this becomes an even more concentrated form. So brine will have a radioactive signature, but brine being brought up through a piping system over time accumulates across the industry, calls that scale, and that has to be cleaned off again by a human being. That job also creates a lot of dust. It's hard to get the scale off. So these workers in Louisiana and also in Mississippi who were cleaning off this scale were creating this dust. It was, it was going all over them. They were breathing it in. That's an exposure. But they were also bringing it home to their family. And there's an instance in the story where we talk about a worker. They tested his clothes, radioactivity. They tested his car, radioactivity. They tested the front steps of his house, radioactivity. Went into the house, looked at the carpet, and then looked at the baby crawling around on the carpet. And there was radioactivity. And that is frightening, of course, and a confirmation that this worry about bringing it home to the families is a very real worry. We've been listening to a conversation with reporter Justin Noble, who's been investigating the radioactive brine that's trucked away from natural gas drilling, and what some of the health implications could be for workers and their families. Kara Holsoppel spoke with Noble last year, after he published an article in Rolling Stone magazine. We'll listen to more of their conversation in just a bit. First, I'd like to play a message we received from a listener in North Carolina. My name's Aaron Bobick. I'm from Raleigh, North Carolina. I am a professional brewer and distiller. In my spare time, I like reading and researching everything I can find on Appalachian folklore, be it fairy tales, creatures, music, food, history, you name it. I really enjoy listening when I'm out camping or fishing. I can just pop my headphones in and enjoy a beautiful day on the lake with Inside Appalachia keeping me even more relaxed. It really has been a wonderful source of information and stories about things I may not have heard otherwise. Thank you for everything you do. I really enjoy all of the shows, and I look forward to everything that is to come in the future. Thanks again. Thanks for that note, Aaron. That's one of the coolest things about podcasts. You don't have to listen in front of a computer or a radio. You can literally take it with you wherever you go. So if you aren't a subscriber, hey, maybe check it out. Take it with you on your next camping trip. Or do what I do. Do farm chores while you listen. Inside Appalachia is available on just about every podcast app. If you want help, we can even walk you through it. Email us at insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. And speaking of camping, I recently took a reporting trip to Canaan Valley. I camped out 
talked to business owners and tourists. I even took an unusual cross-country hike across part of Dolly Sods with wildflower experts. We'll play the stories from my Canaan visit in a few weeks here on Inside Appalachia. For now, though, let's go back to Kara Holsapel's interview with freelance reporter Justin Noble. His article last year in Rolling Stone explored what's done with radioactive waste from fracking. But not everyone agrees that brine is actually toxic to human health. The Allegheny Front's Kara Holsapel starts off this next part of their conversation asking Noble about the gas industry's response to his story. We reached out to the Marcellus Shale Coalition, which represents the fracking industry, They pointed us to a study that the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection released in 2015, which basically said there's little potential for harm to workers or the public from radiation exposure due to oil and gas development. What do you say to that? Yeah, fantastic to hear their opinion on this. Some major critiques of the Pennsylvania DEP T-norm study, uh, not just by the by many others in the scientific community. T-NORM is, it stands for Technologically Enhanced Radioactive Material. There's also something called Naturally Occurring Radioactive Material, NORM, and those are usually described as radiation that people are kind of exposed to every day. That's like, I don't know, stuff, everything we touch has some sort of kind of radiation. They even talk about bananas and your kitchen countertops. Yeah, well, to get into that, bananas, as an expert points out in my piece, um, is a complete, really... Uh, it's a way to mislead people. If you hear people even talking about bananas, you know that they actually don't have their information right. It's a completely different level of exposures. As far as norm, uh, you bring up a great point. Naturally occurring radioactive materials, uh, the acronym for that is NORM. And and being someone who works with language, like I got to give credit to the industry. I mean, what a beautiful way to describe something that's absolutely very dangerous. We'll just call it NORM. So, But it is an important word to know. And if you want to do research on this, look up naturally occurring radioactive materials. You'll be led to a lot of papers. Um, But yeah, referring to that Pennsylvania study and the Marcellus Shale Coalition's mention of it, um, first thing I think it's really important to note, it was not the DEP that did that study, a company called Permafix. They are a radioactive waste uh, management and disposal company. Um, So I do think, and I'm not the only one raising this critique, Uh, it's a little bit concerning that a company that potentially could profit off the waste being produced and splashed around with Marcellus Production literally wrote the report, Um, but many other critiques. Uh, The main one is, uh, and and this is a common thing in big regulator studies, often the conclusion will be like, it's all fine. But if you dig into the weeds, um, there's actually a lot to be very concerned about in the Pennsylvania study. Um, so if you go down to the further sections, you see that certain jobs, um, they are concerned, and they say it right out in their own language that there is a concern for radioactivity with certain jobs. One of those jobs, for example, is at a natural gas processing plant, workers at centralized waste treatment plants, zero discharge facilities, these different types of treatment facilities. There are concerns. This is where the, those, that salty brine is deposited or treated. Right. So these would be plants that are trying to treat the, the waste. Uh, And I think we can get to the science pretty simply. Why are they more concerned? Well, if you are treating, you're inherently concentrating. So even if you have this wonderful way to remove all the radioactivity, and that is very difficult, by the way, and very expensive, but even if somehow you do, you've now just concentrated that radioactivity. So you haven't necessarily gotten rid of the problem. And if your workers are not appropriately protected, they're going to be at risk. And that is highlighted in the study. And furthermore, they actually have samples in the study that point 
out that some of these facilities are discharging radioactivity into the environment at levels that would put it uh, tens and hundreds of times the lowest, you know, the levels for Superfund sites. So they are discharging radioactive waste that's, you know, even more toxic than what can be accepted at Superfund site. Um, that's all in the study. So I just want to highlight that the study actually does have some alarm bells in it. Um, and then there's many critiques with the study. There's, there's a concern, you know, how do they do their sampling? Um, the study often doesn't list which facilities they sample, so we're left wondering, well, where are these high places? Where are these low places? Um, and the study also, I think most importantly, when it comes to looking at worker exposure, their analysis, according to the radiation experts I'm in touch with, their analysis was not thorough. And when I later was led to some Louisiana court cases that also assessed worker exposure, then I was really able to understand what it was like to thoroughly examine worker radiation exposure. And it's just in so much greater detail than the Pennsylvania study did. Well, one of the other things that the Marcellus Shale Coalition pointed to or said, and they have a whole webpage up about your about your story, um, is that, you know, workers at these disposal facilities are trained to properly handle these kinds of waste streams. But I think your story shows that that's not always true. Yeah, that that has not been my experience. Um, I have talked to workers. Uh, many of them really enjoy their jobs, but they do not have radiation training. Uh, I talked to workers who haven't um, have taken no courses on how to handle radioactivity. Um, many of them, you know, don't really have a science background, have taken no science courses beyond what they got in high school. And this is concerning because if you talk to someone in the nuclear industry, and, and I've done this uh, continuously, it's been really helpful. Talk to nuclear industry folks, give them the numbers, and say, what would it take in your industry to be able to handle this? And they're like, oh, my goodness, you need full suits, you need classes. I mean, you can't even get near this equipment until you've been very well educated on it and you're very well protected. And um, there is no way they would be able to just go in, work at a facility without proper equipment, without any training, which, uh, from my reporting, is often what's happening in these areas. Well, so which agency is in charge of regulating the radioactivity of oil and gas wastewater, and why isn't it classified as a hazardous waste? Great question. So I believe we have a quote in there from the EPA saying that uh, no agency is responsible for handling the radioactivity that comes to the surface with oil and gas production. Um, So... We're looking at a regulatory black hole here, uh, and we did go to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. You think, oh, well, maybe they're on it. Well, no, we have confirmation they're not on it. Um, there's certain ways different agencies can kind of get close to parts of it, but essentially I, I think that is the best way to describe it. It's a black hole. Um, why is that so? We hear so much about the Halliburton loophole, certainly many significant loopholes, all important to pay attention to. But there's actually this extraordinary exemption with oil and gas waste that goes back to the 1970s. Um, So in the 1970s, the nation was realizing we produce a lot of uh, industrial waste. You know, we we are an industrial country. That's great job and create things we all need and want. Um, But there is going to be some hazardous waste. So let's appropriately recognize the waste as hazardous. Let's appropriately label it as hazardous. Let's put it in certain vehicles that are appropriately designed to handle it. Let's send it to facilities that are appropriately designed to accept it. And also let's instruct our workers on how to appropriately handle it. All waste that is hazardous will be labeled as hazardous cradle-to-grave handling of that waste. But guess which industry got an exemption? All oil and gas waste 
um, produced at the wellhead. So that means sludges, brine, drill cutting, scale, all of these things we've been talking about, they are labeled as non-hazardous. And what's so um, just unbelievable is that the EPA actually analyzed this exemption in 1988, and they recognize that there's uranium in oil and gas waste. They recognize that there's other types of radioactivity, there's heavy metals, but yet they determined that it would cause a severe economic burden. Those are their own words, a severe economic burden on the oil and gas industry. Furthermore, there literally would not be enough landfills and there would not be enough regulators. And therefore, we have to label what we know as hazardous as non-hazardous. And everything stems from that. That exemption is why you can see a brine truck driving around um, with radioactivity uh, well above limits to be concerned about and yet no placard for hazard. So you mentioned the tanker trucks themselves don't have this, you know, blaring hazardous waste so people know what's in it. So the drivers themselves know what's what they're hauling. We reached out to the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection because there are, there are Department of Transportation rules about trucking hazardous waste. Um, and they told us that the radium levels in drilling wastewater don't meet the Department of Transportation's threshold for hazardous materials. And that's why those trucks aren't labeled as such. What do you know about that? Right. So so it turns out there is a second way in which a truck could receive a, a hazardous placard, and that is that the Department of Transportation has rules, uh, a classification of different types of hazards, and one is radioactivity. So if a truck has above a certain threshold, it would thus have to be placarded as radioactive. Um and there is uh, a radiation expert who's done a lot of work in the Marcellus who's looked at those numbers, uh, and we quote in our story, and he pointed out that the average Marcellus brine truck, using figures from Pennsylvania's own report, from the DP's own report, the average Marcellus brine truck would be about six times above the DOT limits, the threshold for radioactivity. And these are really complicated numbers. Um, even uh, the expert in analyzing this actually had initially given us uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission numbers, which were, they were about a thousand times those limits. Um, the DOT limit seems to be the important one, about six times. I think it shows, and, and I looked at Pennsylvania DEP's response, I don't understand where they got their numbers, but this absolutely is confusing, and that's part of the problem. Where even do these regulations stand? So I took that analysis back to the DOT. I have a really great contact there. And I said, um, what we're getting is that these trucks are higher. And also, you know, we know um, your limit, what seems to be your limit. Um, we know the high Marcellus radium signature. It seems even that trucks on the low end of that spectrum of Marcellus brine would still be above the threshold. How is it possible they're not placarded as radioactivity? And what the spokesperson told me was so revealing. They're like, well, it doesn't matter what the scientists know. It doesn't matter what is in the general literature. The only thing that would trigger our regulations is when that truck is tested at the wellhead by the operator who discharges the brine, dispatches the brine. Uh, and based on what those numbers are, our regulations either are kicked into place or not. And then I was like, well, what if they're not testing? And the spokesperson was like, you mean if they're breaking the law? Well, yeah, I guess they could do that. So it's self-regulating. Um, there is not, uh, a, and there has not been, at least until now, an effort to determine that. And it would be a great thing to crack into. If the, if the DP is a bit confused, and even our experts are a bit confused, let's have the DOT 
look at it and actually figure out if these trucks are above or not above. And that is such a significant determination. If they really are above the radioactivity limit, they would need a radioactive placard. So that's the diagonal little symbol you see on a truck. A, that would mean the drivers would need training. They would have to know. They could not be duped anymore. B, that would mean that it changed the insurance costs, which would change operational costs. C, the trucks would only be able to go on certain routes. So in Ohio, we have a case in the story, a brine truck spilled right next to a reservoir. These trucks would not be able to drive next to reservoirs in schools and things like that if they were appropriately placarded with the radioactive. Some Louisiana oil and gas workers unknowingly exposed to radiation have been successful in bringing lawsuits against the industry Many were made sick from their exposure. So do you think that kind of litigation will catch on in other places? And how could that change the current situation? It's it's just it's even hard to get into this because it was such a sad thing. It was really tragic to find out that this case existed. The, The whole question throughout this reporting was, okay, this looks scary. I'm a little bit worried. Now I'm a lot worried. I'm talking to the workers. I'm very worried. But but how real are these risks? And when I found this set of Louisiana legal cases, um, this is confirmation. These uh, cases, the, the set I have, talk about 33 workers. They received various types of cancers, different leukemias, lymphomas, colon cancer, liver cancer. Um, some of them died. Some of them are still alive. Uh, and they brought a case. And their cancers were indisputably linked to the radioactivity exposure that they received on the job. The reason that uh, was done, how that was done, that analysis was made, a radiation expert tabulated up their exposures in a very detailed way. Um, you know, even like eating lunch in the workplace environment and licking your lips, something like that. If it's a dusty environment and you have dust accumulated on your lips, that would add to exposure. So really granular detail. Uh, and then put these numbers through a program I had no idea existed. There's a program of the Centers for Disease Control where they are able to tabulate up exposures and determine with a degree of accuracy the likelihood that a worker's cancer came from the radioactivity exposure. This was developed with the nuclear industry in mind. But in these cases, it's done for the oil and gas industry. And what's scary is the numbers here are like 99.7%, 99.3%. Those percentages, that's a chance that the, their exposure led to their cancer. Exactly. So that is the, the chance that their exposure to radioactivity on the job, and in this case it's an oil and gas job, uh, led to cancer, right? So uh, where does that translate? Well, these cases did not go to a jury, but what happened is the industry settled. Uh, and, and we all know how big, how powerful the, the degree and uh, reach of the lawyers in this industry. But these cases, uh, as the expert and the attorney, I'm in touch with the attorney as well, pointed out, the industry has settled these cases. They don't want to take this to court. And the word that both the attorney and the expert have used is indisputable. When, it, when it's there, it's indisputable. So, so to get to the second part of your question, yeah, is this coming? For the, for the Northeast, for the Marcellus, um, yeah, I'm already in touch with an attorney, a, a Pittsburgh-based attorney who's uh, done work, prior work, uh, with coal industry workers and contamination and, and is interested in going forward. There's interest among certain environmental groups. Uh, and I can't see why folks wouldn't go forward because there are workers out there who are, are willing to, to speak out. You know, the, and the story has encouraged them, and more workers have come forward since the story has been published. And just one important note, the Louisiana cases, that that was Louisiana. We know the radium signature of the oil and gas 
in Louisiana. It's much lower than the Marcellus. Uh, no one has looked at what's happening to workers in the Marcellus. That would be uh, a really important you know, thing to do, um, but it's higher. So it, it's deeply concerning. Uh, the Louisiana oil and gas workers were working their jobs in many cases for 10, 20 uh, years. So it's not just like a year in the oil and gas industry will make you sick, although I am in touch with workers who, you know, got sick possibly from other ways after short uh, jobs in the industry. But the, the, the Louisiana cases really show that it does take some time for exposures to build up, and it's certain types of jobs. Um, and that analysis, uh, it would be so important to do that analysis here. And at this point, the Marcellus is going for 15 years. So you would have some workers that have been involved for a long time. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Justin Noble wrote an article about the radiation and oil and gas waste as a freelancer for Rolling Stone. Noble's also working on a book about the subject. He was speaking with the Allegheny Front's Kara Holsoppel. The Allegheny Front is produced in Pittsburgh and reports on the environment. More at AlleghenyFront.org. So if you've got a garden, this is the time of year when you might be thinking about putting tomatoes in the ground. Last year, we told you about an Appalachian heirloom tomato called the Mortgage Lifter. But like we reported, there's more than one tomato called the Mortgage Lifter. If you buy seeds from a catalog, you're probably getting a variety bred by a guy named Radiator Charlie in Logan County, West Virginia. But there's another, lesser-known Mortgage Lifter that goes back even farther to the 1920s. That Mortgage Lifter was first cultivated by a man named William Esler in Cabell County, West Virginia, and his descendants are still growing them. Folkways reporter Zach Harold says there are some new wrinkles in the mortgage lifter saga. Zach, here in, in Floyd County, we had the annual um, ritual where people put their stuff in too early and then you get the late frost, and that definitely happened this year. But now we're past our official frost date of May 15. People are thinking about gardens. What's happening with the mortgage lifter story? Well, we've got folks thinking about gardens here, too. And uh, I went and visited Dean Williams. Maybe you remember him from my last mortgage lifter story. He, he's the son-in-law who kind of took on the project of researching the, the tomatoes' history. And uh, I went and visited Dean at his house in Huntington. He takes me into his house and, and down some steps into his garage. And uh, what we find there is a pretty cute little homegrown tomato growing operation it worried me because i started them and, it, and you know they say they're supposed to germinate within five to ten days well day 12 arrived and, and i had not seen anything come up yet so i was trying to i was i was uh, you know not, not frantic but i was a little disappointed and then day 13 seven came up and then by that evening i had 20 up and by the next day, I had 45, and, I, and then it just kept exploding over the, over the next uh, three to four days. Before he knew it, Dean had 185 tomato plants growing on this little plywood and sawhorse table he had built in his garage. Whoa, what's he doing with all those? He must be planting a huge garden this year. Well, Dean only plans to grow about a dozen of these in his own garden. Uh, the rest are headed for local greenhouses where folks like you or me could go and buy an Essler mortgage lifter plant and raise the tomatoes on our own. 
He's already taken 120 of these plants to Hatcher's Greenhouse in South Point, Ohio, and he's taken several dozen to Joyce's Greenhouse in Huntington, West Virginia. Both of these greenhouses, both Hatcher's and Joyce's, um, used to work with Bob Essler, Dean's father-in-law, to, to grow Essler mortgage lifters. So really, this is the continuation of a, of a long tradition. The ability to grow things is a valuable skill. Always has been, always will be. And it sounds like this new generation of the families now taking up this and learning how to do that, do just that with this particular type of tomato. I asked him why he had given himself to this task and, and, and let it take up so much of his time. And, and the answer was you know, pretty simple. Well, it's, it's, it's my wife's legacy, her family's legacy. Um, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure that the, uh, the kids, um, uh, you know, the grand, grandkids and so on are, are geared up to, uh, to have any interest or to pursue this any further. So I'd like to see this, you know, maybe get some ground roots behind it um, and see other people, you know, find some interest and want to uh, see, it, see it move forward too. Here's the coolest part. He's doing it for no money. You know, the hatchers were very kind. They said, well, what can we pay you? What can we offer to you? you know, and I said, listen, absolutely nothing. I, I just, I, it was fun for me to do it. It was, it was an experiment. It was, uh, it was just nice to see, see that uh, we had an opportunity perhaps to share this with the public a little bit more. Hopefully it might generate some excitement from some people to grow them, and they'll want to, uh, to see this grow a little larger. This is very similar to what his late father-in-law, Bob Essler, did. You know, Bob's father, William Essler, was the one who developed the mortgage lifter, and Bob spent years and years of his life trying to get the word out about the tomato. I asked Dean what Bob would think about all this. If I look at it this way, I think Bob's watching over me a little bit. <laughs> if, without, his, without his, I don't think I would have been this successful at this point, so... Uh, give yourself some credit. You do, you, you're doing um, this without a greenhouse. I'll, I'll, be on, I'll be honest with you. When If I can get these in the ground and they they grow fruit, I'll, I will give myself some credit, okay? Until that time, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm taking anything for granted. I still got to get them out of this garage yet. Well, Zach, you know, here at Inside Appalachia, we do pride ourselves on journalistic integrity, so I, I do have to do a little bit of fact-checking. Does Dean have a mortgage on his house? <laughs> Has it been lifted? You know... I forgot to ask that, and to be honest, if he's giving these things away, I, I don't think uh, <laughs> I don't think he's he's going to be making the mortgage payments with these tomatoes anytime soon. I will say, what he lacks in financial compensation, he's more than going to make up for in delicious mortgage lifter tomatoes. This year, I'm raising strictly uh, mortgage lifters, and my wife has to have her half runner beans. So that's all we're going to have in the garden this year. Well, as usual, I cannot wait for July here when tomatoes start ripening for us. Um, just, just hearing this story makes me makes my stomach growl a little bit. But Zach, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia and sharing this story with us. Anytime, Mason. Homegrown tomatoes or hot dogs? That's my beat. I like potato. You like tomato. I like tomato. Potato, potato, tomato, tomato. Let's call the whole thing. So it is garden season, and we want to hear from you. What's in your garden this year? How's the pandemic changed how you approach it? And do you have any good tips we can use? Tell us. Tag us in your photos on Twitter or email us. Write to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. I can tell y'all, for me, I had hoped to plant a huge garden this year. 
But candidly, the deer is so bad this year, I'm just going to confine what I do to a few tomato and pepper plants in a cooler and maybe some tubs out back on the porch. Maybe next year I'll get that deer fence up. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps, Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald, John Wyatt, and Blue Dot Sessions. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthur Holtz is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. If you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at Mason Adams, M-A-S-O-N-A-T-O-M-S. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories, or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. We call the whole thing off, then we must part. And oh, if we ever part, then that might break my heart. So if you like pajamas, I like pajamas. I'll wear pajamas, give up pajamas. For we know we need each other, so we better call the calling off. Oh, let's go.